honor our veterans. Thank you guys. Like that video said, we don't ever want to take your sacrifice for granted. The video talked about it, and we talked about it in the series, right? We want to see God's kingdom come, his will be done. We want to see the Prince of Peace have his perfect reign where there's no more conflict, no more violence, no more war. But while we're still here, we just thank you for your sacrifice, that you sacrifice your freedom so that we can exercise these freedoms here. We can worship here tonight, and we honor you guys. We give it up for you guys. We appreciate you guys, and we love you guys. But also, uh, Anthony said we're a praying church, and we, uh, we don't apologize for that. So uh, I want to pray for a couple tonight, uh, Cord and Kelly Walls. Uh, we say here all the time at City Life that we love people deeply, but we hold to them loosely. And that's because the same Holy Spirit that unifies us all under the blood of Christ and makes us like family and a family of faith, that's the same Holy Spirit that so often calls us sends us. You see it throughout the book of Acts. Paul connects with these people. They're like family, and then he's off to go build the church elsewhere. And that's what's so awesome is that's exactly what Cord and Kelly are doing. Uh, They felt called, and they're going to join Connecting Point Church in Texas. I don't even know how to do a Texas accent, but y'all headed to Texas. It's what? College Station, right outside of Texas A&M. So Cord's going to have to burn all his Oklahoma clothes, start rocking some Texas. Hey, man, it's biblical. All things to all people, man. What would Paul do? Probably throw some Texas A&M clothes on, man. So we can't, if you guys can, if you can stand up, we want to pray for them. Uh, We want to celebrate them. They're not leaving this week. They're actually going to be here next week, so don't get confused. But Steph and I won't be here next week. So as a pastor, I wanted to celebrate them because really Cord is like, family. I've known him for the better part of a decade. He's been a part of City Life for the better part of a decade. Kelly and him got married. She's become a part of the family. So this is deeply meaningful. We love them and we want to send them off and celebrate them. So if we could just join around them, lay hands on them. We are a praying church. We're going to do it again. But Lord God, we lift up Cord. We lift up Kelly. God, we thank you for the gift of who they are. God, I pray that even now as we lay hands on them, God, that you would awaken giftings in them. God, awaken anointing in their lives, Lord God. More uh, Walking in more power in your word and your spirit, God. Shaking off maybe those things that have hindered to this point so that when they get to Texas, in College Station, Texas, they're there for the first s- sermon. God, they're there for the first service. God, that the enemy would shake because they're there to build your kingdom. God, and introduce those college students, everybody in that community, to Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for the ministry calling that's on their life. I pray that that's something that that. Would would never become light. There is a weight to it, God. And God, I pray that they would always uh, just be in awe of the fact that you can use them in such a mighty, powerful way, God, to introduce people to Jesus Christ and the grace and mercy that you extend, God. So we pray that you would go with them spirit in spirit, God, and in every practical way as they, as they work out their home, as they welcome their child, William Maverick Walls, Lord God. We pray blessing over every detail. God, let this be a season of joy. Let this be a season of faith. Let this be a season of expectation. Just speak against discouragement, doubt, any frustration. God, that they would be so mindful that you're sovereign over every detail, that you are sending them. You are going before them. Your hand is beneath them and upon them, and your goodness and mercy follow them, and we thank you for it. God, we thank you again for their lives, and we celebrate them. We thank you for the deposit they're going to leave behind here at City Life. We thank you, as Paul says in Corinthians, that we can do the work of the Lord because nothing we do for your church is in vain. And God, I thank you that the the deposit they left here is going to bear fruit for decades because of what they've been to us here at City Life Suffolk. But God, we pray you would bless them and keep them as they go. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Amen. And ironically, it's second Saturday. So y'all hanging out at AMF Bowling, right? Yes. Yeah, so if you're like, oh, Corey and Kelly are leaving in a week, you want to hang out with them. They'll be at AMF Bowling with all our young adults hanging out. But for us here tonight, as we get back to our seats, we're digging back into the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount for weeks and months now. And, and if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. And then we'll be reading through verse 27 tonight as we work our way through. And maybe you're like, wait a second. We skipped the beginning of, of Matthew 7, right? Do not judge. I wanted to dig into that. Next year, the beginning of 2019, we're going to be in a series called Myth Busting. And that's one of the issues we'll tackle. The reality is... Steph's having her surgery this week. So this is, we're going to put the bow on the series tonight. We're going to tie it up. And uh, next week, actually, Nigel Anderson, he was here about two years ago. We did a, a joint sermon together. He's going to be here next week, really sharing his, his life story, which is so powerful. Um, he shared it with me before, so don't miss that. He's going to be here next week as Steph and I are in the hospital, um, sharing his testimony, sharing what God is doing in his life in mighty ways. So, Give him a warm welcome when he comes. All right, do it on my behalf. But what have we gone through so far in this series? We've looked about at how this is about the kingdom of God coming, what it looks like to be kingdom citizens. We talked about how Jesus introducing this kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount probably would have raised some eyebrows because it wasn't the, the political power. It wasn't the military might that people might have thought was coming with the Messiah and his kingdom. Matter of fact, when he starts talking through the Beatitudes, it's blessed are the meek, right? blessed are the peacemakers. He says blessed are the persecuted. Right? In that time, it, that would have raised some eyebrows because it's like this upside-down kingdom that he's introducing through the Beatitudes. We also talked about this inside-out kingdom, how so often in that culture uh, there was this attempt to be changed from the exterior with pressure from this and that and God wants to change us from the inside out, change us in our hearts. We talked about the character of the disciple and the Beatitudes. We talked about the influence of the disciple that, that Jesus shows us in this picture of salt and light. We're not just supposed to be good. We're supposed to be good for something. Right? God gives us this gift of purpose and influence as his disciples and his followers to be salt and light. Then we even talked about the righteousness of the disciple, how it's not just about actions he's after our hearts. It's not just about compliance he, he cares about our character, cares about our motive, cares about our hearts. So after all that, I want to give you guys a quiz. You can use your pens uh, next to the next step cards. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm not actually giving you guys a quiz. We were like, I would grade it, call you midweek on how you did. We'd meet up over coffee, and I'd scold you. No, that's not, that's not what we're doing here. But what would you do if, if I handed out a quiz? Would you laugh, just pass it, not even take it? Would you go to the bathroom for 15 minutes? <laughs> would you go back to middle school, cheat off the person next to you? Or maybe you're that person in middle school who, who you knew there was supposed to be a quiz and the teacher's about to let everybody out. You're like, wait, 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 weren't we supposed to have a quiz? Yeah, we loved you. <laughs> but I, I say all that because there's a story I want to start tonight with of a man who was attending Columbia University at 70 years old. That on the surface, right, there's nothing wrong with that. Right, maybe he didn't have a chance to do it earlier in life. Or I remember when I was at William & Mary, I'd be in these large classroom settings, and there'd be people of all different ages and backgrounds because some people would just audit the course. I think that's awesome, right? Leaders are lifelong learners. The moment you stop learning, there's a shelf life and an expiration date on your leadership or just your growth. So learning is important. But what was notable about this guy is he had been going to Columbia University for 50 years, 
over 50 years. This is, I don't know if you saw the, the, the Adam Sandler movie, Billy Madison. This is like the college edition meets Groundhog's Day. In college for decades, taking class after class, accumulating all these different degrees, accumulating all this knowledge, more knowledge than most of us, right? We're, we only sat in on like four years of classes for most of us in college. This guy, decades, more knowledge than most of us have ever taken in. And yet would you look at his life and would you gauge it as a success? What was the fruit, right, of his life? What was the impact of his life? Because for most of us, we go to college so we can take knowledge in and understanding and wisdom and then go out into the world and use it and have an impact. And I share that story because I think there's a lot of people in the church that are living a similar life where we've taken in knowledge and we take in knowledge every week and we take in more knowledge. And our issue isn't that we need more. It's that we need to apply what we already know. You know, he sat in so many classroom lectures. He sat through lecture after lecture. And that and the sermons that we sit in, they're, they're similar in one way. They stimulate the mind. God says in Isaiah 1, 8 to the prophet Isaiah, come, let's reason together. Right? Reason and wisdom direct our passion and zeal toward a righteous end. Right? So it's important that we use our mind, but a sermon should also advance from making us think to making us feel, right? from engaging the mind to engaging the heart. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, explicitly is concerned with the heart of his listeners. But lastly, a sermon shouldn't just stop with feeling. It should end in action. This work of our mind and our heart should lead to us working our hands and our feet. At the end of my life, I don't want to stand before God and hear him say, well-learned, good and faithful student. I want to hear him say, well-done, good and faithful servant. As we noted, though, beginning this series, Jesus, he begins the entire Sermon on the Mount with blessings. And it's this beautiful picture, right? The, the first word of his kingdom manifesto is blessed. It's this picture that God's grace always comes first, and God's grace is our greatest blessing. But then we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and here we are coming towards the end, and he doesn't balance it with more blessings. Actually, he's kind of like a juxtaposition because he dives into warnings. And these warnings are metaphors that contrast two of a kind, two gates and their paths, two teachers and their disciples, and two builders and their foundations on the homes they build. And the first thing to note is that in each one of these metaphors, there's no third option. You're either choosing one or the other. There's no Switzerland. There's no neutrality here. Jesus says in the Gospels, you're either with me or against me. So as we jump in to verse 17, excuse me, 13, it says, enter, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. It says, narrow is the gate that leads to a narrow road. And the order, it's important, because the gate speaks of the entrance from death to life. It speaks to salvation. It speaks to Jesus. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. And to get this backwards can lead to a theology of works, where if we choose the right road, we choose the road of righteousness, and we just stick at it long enough, work hard enough, don't falter, don't detour, then at the end of that road, we get to enter through the pearly gates. You make it through the gates, almost as if your faithfulness is what paid the toll. 
But like the hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. It was the all-sufficient sacrifice. So Jesus puts it in this order on purpose. The gate comes first. But it's fitting that the gate doesn't open into heaven and the wedding feast because we're not there yet, right? There's a road we're on. And it's also important to note that it doesn't open to a lazy boy, right? It doesn't open to a recliner or a futon because there's work for us to do as we follow him. And there's a work that he does in us as we do this work. See, there's justification in Christ, right? We're justified through his blood before God. We're in right standing with God, but there's sanctification that happens in us as we follow him. We don't just come to the cross for grace. We come to the cross, and then as Jesus invites us to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. So for each one of these metaphors, we see something that should be present in our life if we're following him. And the first is quite simply movement. This idea of paths and movement, it's important imagery to hold on to because I think sometimes we think of our salvation as positional, right? I'm under the cross, so I'm good. I'm under the blood of Christ, so I'm good. And praise God for that. That's a beautiful picture of the justification we celebrate in Jesus. But God's redemption of us and salvation of us doesn't just call us to a position, it calls us to a process, And a simple name, or actually a big word for this process of becoming more like Christ throughout our life, it's the the word sanctification. I mean, quite simply, every week, right, you pull up in your seat and there's a next step card. And then Anthony gets up here and he's plugging the next step card. And you've heard it over and over and over again to where you probably just black out or look at something on your phone. It's like, oh, it's the next step moment because it's for the visitors to fill out their information. But you look at the other side of that card, it's this recognition that we all have next steps. Every one of us. None of us have arrived. Maybe it's baptism, right? Maybe that's the next step. There's, there's life groups on here, joining a group. Because for some of us, we come here every weekend and we encounter the presence of God. But we haven't yet embraced this family. And there's a power in doing that. So, so maybe that's a next step. And that's your forward movement. Also on here is serving, right? Maybe you encounter God's presence on the weekend, you embrace his family, you do coffee with folks, you meet up, but you're yet to engage the mission. Not just serving here on the weekend, but serving on outreaches like College Square or or even things that aren't even affiliated with the church, but engaging that mission. We all have steps. We all have next steps because we're all on this journey of sanctification. And you know how I know none of us have arrived? Because the goal is Matthew 548, to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I don't know about you, I haven't got there yet. I'm, I've, got, I've gone less distance than I've got to go multiplied by thousands, millions, and infinity, right? It's what Jesus pointed in Matthew 5:48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that kind of goal, again, is something we're never going to arrive at in this life. And one perspective of that is, well, that's a bummer. It's <laughs> a downer. It can seem like a negative. But, you know, I recently heard a story about Troy Aikman he was a, a quarterback, the evil franchise, the Dallas Cowboys in the 90s. And he won a couple of Super Bowls. And after he won his first Super Bowl, all the confetti falls. They get their trophies, celebrate in the locker room, right? Big old party. He gets back to the hotel room, and he sits down on the bed, and he thinks, is this it? Like, this is it? And it wasn't depression that set in, but it was this realization, and the lesson for him was that the joy is in the journey, that that journey with his teammates that he went on, that's where he found his joy. 
There's this realization that we won't be perfect on this side of heaven. We'll never arrive, but that isn't to up the stress. For me, it can help me exhale. Because it's not about being perfect today, but it is about progressing today, right? I'm not going to be best today, but I can be better today. I can look more like Jesus at the end of the day today than I did at the beginning. I'm not going to look just like him. But as I progress, there's joy in the journey because God meets us in the journey. And praise God that he does meet us. Because this narrow is the gate and narrow is the road. It's not just speaking to measurements and getting out a ruler. It's talking about difficulty. I was talking to somebody this week about uh, after he got saved, he was talking to somebody who was discipling him. And he, he encouraged him and then he looked him in the eyes and he said, it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. You're going to have to fight. <laughs> right? The enemy now sees you as his enemy. This realization that it's not going to always be easy. This picture of picking up our cross, right? Denying ourselves and following Christ. But Christ also says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's this reassurance that he'll be with us, right there with us along the way. This picture of a yoke that he's yoked in with us. And when we're weak, he's strong. And he gives us the grace and the strength to go on the journey. And again, as we endure, we're sanctified. As we endure him with us, we begin to look more and more like Christ. The second metaphor we see is two teachers and two disciples. And Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So Jesus is saying there will be false teachers. There will be false shepherds and guides that would lead us in wayward directions. But Jesus gives us a tip. He says, hey, you'll know them. You'll know them by their fruit. You'll recognize them by their fruit. I think sometimes we'll think, oh, well, then I'll be put off by the fruit. But think about Adam and Eve, right? The fruit was tempting. And sometimes the fruit is tempting for us. Why? Because one of the ways that we can spread false teaching is to make this gate that we just talked about, make it wide. You know, the narrow gate is payment for our sins and punishment by the blood of Jesus Christ. How will we widen that gate? One way is to say, well, sin isn't all that bad. I don't think we say that, but sometimes I think we think about sin kind of like a parking ticket. Yeah, it stinks, right? But I pay the penalty, and, and I, maybe I feel a little bad about it, but it's not keeping me up at night, right? Like I can just move on because it was bad, but it's not that bad. And I think sometimes we can have that perspective. We have no problem admitting that we're guilty of sins like this. But I'm not just guilty of various sins and isolated incidents. No, I'm broken by sin. It goes as deep as my heart. And it says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. I've been reading through Jeremiah. Three times in Jeremiah, Jeremiah confronts these false prophets. And he says, look, you guys offer superficial treatments for this mortal wound. He's basically saying all this, this sin is just, it's a scratch, right? Don't worry about it. So they wouldn't heed Jeremiah's warnings. You know the indirect fruit of this and the second way that we can widen the gate is we can widen the gate through good works. Because if sin isn't all that bad, then I don't really need Jesus to die for it. Like all many other religions in the world, I'll just, I'll do my best and I'll balance the scale myself. And why does that appeal to us? 
Because if you don't need Jesus to die for you and be Lord over your life, you don't have to listen to what he said. Just live however you want. So that is appealing. It appeals to us as we journey on and we try to widen the gate and widen the path. But even for those of us that love Jesus, want to obey Jesus, there's the trap that the church in Galatia fell into, where it's Jesus plus your works, and that's how we widen the gate. And that's appealing to us because we're a culture that celebrates being self-made. We don't like handouts. So it appeals to our pride to be able to say, yeah, Jesus died for my sins, but look, look what I did as well. But again, it's Jesus no more, no less, the all-sufficient sacrifice. All these examples, they twist the message of Jesus and attempt to widen what's narrow. But as it says in Scripture, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to what? Death. And there's a point before we get to the next metaphor, and it's quite simple, that you need a proper and accurate view and lens of the Scriptures to discern this. If we're not in our scriptures, and I'm just saying willy-nilly stuff up here, like, we need to know the scripture, be familiar with scripture. I'm reading through John, and in John, there were people who were ready to put out, stone, kill Jesus, because they thought he was a false teacher. These are people that, that thought they knew the Bible, right? And in John chapter 8, 37, Jesus says, some of you are trying to kill me because there's no room in your hearts for my word. If we don't make room for God's words, then we'll lack discernment. And if we don't make room for God's word, it can give way to false teaching, false ideas. Again, these things that we'll tackle next year in that series, myth busting. So we need to be in God's word. It's not an option in, as we walk this journey of life. But what else should be present in our lives along with God's word, according to this metaphor, is fruit. It talks about fruit. In Matthew 3, 8, John the Baptist calls out the religious leaders and says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus basically co-signs this as he says, look, the evidence will be in the fruit. Then he begins to talk about, well, if there's false teachers, then there's false disciples. And it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It's a hard text. And I'm studying that this week, and there's no way to read that text and not begin to reflect on your heart. And that's on purpose, right? That's fully the intent that we would read that and study our lives because it checks us. First off, it, it checks those of us that would widen the gate with our works, again, because these are people that when it's time for justification, what do they point to? Their external fruit, what they did, their works. What will you point to? Again, may it be Jesus, no more, no less, and his all-sufficient sacrifice. But perhaps what leaves me most shook when I read this text is these are people that knew of God. They called him Lord, Lord, so they even had right doctrine, right? But what Jesus says he will tell them is what's so telling. He says, I never knew you. Our goal and the fruit in our life is not just knowing of God. It's not just head knowledge. God wants to know us. He wants us to know him. The ultimate fruit that God wants in our lives is relationship with him. I've said it before. He's not looking for more obedient slaves. He's looking for more beloved sons and daughters. He wants relationship. It says in the Old Testament again and again that God knows his people. It says it in Jeremiah 1.5, Hosea 13.5, Amos 3.2, 
His people are defined by the fact that he knows them and they know him. Again, he's not looking for more obedient slaves. He's looking for beloved sons and daughters that are walking in the ultimate fruit, which is relationship and communion with him. And then we get the third metaphor, which is two houses. And Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. He juxtaposes two foundations here, sand and solid rock. And we have a lot of sand here in Virginia. We got the red Virginia clay here in VA. But there, they had plenty of sand around the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. And the sand on the shores of the Sea of Galilee in the summer months, it became very hard. Very hard. It seemed solid enough to build on. But any wise builder wouldn't be fooled with how hard the sand was. Any wise builder would dig down some 10 feet to get to the bedrock and let that be the foundation and start building there. And we see two modern applications of this metaphor. In one, the stance where so often we would think, well, we don't need a foundation, right? We live in a society where the word post-truth was the word of the year some two years ago. Post-truth meaning that, that feelings supersede truth. Who needs absolute truths? We should be worried about happiness. Who cares about facts as long as I feel good? Who cares about truth as long as I'm happy? It's the foundation we find in the book of Judges, where it says everyone did as they saw fit. Whatever made them happy didn't end well in the book of Judges. But the second response we see in our culture is any foundation will do. We see this in pluralism or the politically correct stance that let's let various truths coexist. But again, when the storm hits, only one foundation stands. Again, Jesus is drawing this line between the foundation that's built on Christ and a foundation that's built on anything else. And only one of them truly stands when the test comes. So what should be present in our lives in addition to movement and in addition to fruit is building, construction. Jesus was a carpenter. And he's speaking to people who understood from a life of understanding. I've shared this before. My dad was a carpenter. This man built houses for decades Anything from the foundation to laying shingles on the roof up in Massachusetts, he'd be doing it in the snow. And I've shared it before. One of my biggest regrets in life is I have this encyclopedia of, of handyman knowledge, and I have zilch. <laughs> Never tapped into it. I can't build squat. Like, don't ever call me to help you with anything handy. I can't build a house. My dad could probably still build a house. He's, he's well into his 60s, and he could probably build a house. But I can strive every day and every year to building my life. And I can build every day. And I would encourage you tonight that you build every day. And every day is big, right? Because it all starts with a seed. If you look all the way back in Genesis, way back when the waters rose, like in this metaphor, but when they rose and they flooded Noah's neighborhood, his land, it's perhaps the most impressive feat of construction in all of history. That Jesus, not Jesus, Noah, (laughs) 
He's preaching. You just throw Jesus everywhere. Noah builds this ark. It took him, some people think, over 100 years. Not just is it this major work of construction. It's one of the most major works of dedication and patience that we will ever see. Noah building this ark. And why did it take so long? Well, duh, it was huge. But also, in Jewish tradition, it says that the first thing that Noah did after he was commanded by God to build the ark was he planted seeds. And from those seeds, he got the trees that he knew he would need. Not just any trees, the trees he wanted, the trees he knew he would need to harvest and to build the ark. He started with a seed. You know, if you go back even further in Genesis, at the fall in the Garden of Eden, God speaks to a battle over seeds. And there's so many layers of meaning to unpack here. That's a sermon unto itself. But in a very practical way, there is a battle for seeds. The seeds of potential, the seeds of purpose, the seeds of God's calling, the seeds of giftings that he's put in your life, put in my life for us to steward and to protect. And you know, I think some of us, we're praying for the big picture. We're praying for the house, the completed house, and we pray for it so much that we forget that God hands us seeds. Seemingly small, but so packed with potential. We so often ask God for the big moments. God's looking for our faithfulness in the mundane that's going to get us there. We want the stuff to throw on uh, Facebook and Instagram, but God wants us to start seeing potential in the seemingly small. I'd ask you, what's your confession about where you are in life, the things you're walking through? Is it, well, this is small? I'd encourage you, it's big. Because what you're walking in now has potential to change your tomorrows, and that's big. That meeting you got out of, right, that was mind-numbing, maybe a financial meeting, right, for the church or your business, that's big. Pulling your family together at the dinner table on a Monday night, you all got a case of the Mondays, but you're all around the dinner table together, that's big. Being able to talk to your kids on the way to a soccer game or a sporting event and conversation in the car, sowing seeds there, speaking into their lives, that's big. That's big. Reframe the way you begin to think about your day-to-day life. It's like the famous quote, right? Your thoughts inform your words. Your words inform your actions. Your actions inform your habits. Your habit shapes your destiny. Something like that. Your thoughts can shape your destiny. Reframe your day-to-day and realize, man, whatever I'm walking in right now, if I'm faithful with this, I steward this, it's a seed, and it can be big. It's not about adding pressure to each moment, but it is about adding meaning, recognizing potential that we're all called to build And again, I believe that God has a calling and a purpose for each one of us that when we get to the end of our days, it's big, it's beautiful, and it's done mighty things for the kingdom. But it starts with seeds. You know what comes out of seeds is roots, right? What's important is what's beneath the surface. The same way with the foundation of a house. What's important is what's beneath the surface. Because it's what's beneath that supports what we see. You can only fake it for so long. Can only fake it for so long. You don't have roots or a foundation, then you'll topple sooner or later. That's why we see leaders failing in all different areas, from politics to religious leaders to sports figures, because there's no roots. There's no character and integrity holding it up. So the question is, what's beneath the surface? What's in your heart? Because both houses, they looked identical on the surface. The religious leaders that taught a surface-level external righteousness. They looked good on the surface. They looked like they were killing it. But it was shallow. Because like we talked about, it encouraged compliance, but it didn't truly build character. It encouraged ritual, but they missed relationship. And what comes of it? Jesus says it will collapse with a mighty crash. Can you imagine? Jesus is teaching. 
get your life right, or it'll collapse with a mighty crash. He walked off. That's what happened to me. It's the last words of his sermon. I don't make a habit of that because that's wild. But Jesus is drawing a line again at this point in his ministry, at this point in his movement, that he was saying, look, you have a choice between one or the other. And that choice has eternal consequences. Remember, we noted when we opened this series now weeks and months ago that there were crowds present, so many people surrounding Jesus as his movement is getting started. And it says before he starts speaking that he withdrew up this mountain. It says his disciples came to him. So again, he's teaching his disciples. But clearly over the course of him speaking, the crowd has been drawn in. They were listening. They were overhearing. And it says that when Jesus stopped speaking, it says they were amazed at his teaching and the authority that he taught with. I mean, this is God in the flesh speaking. They were amazed. But you know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say they were changed. It doesn't say they were repentant. Because amazement doesn't indicate acceptance. Amazement isn't the same as commitment. So my question for you tonight is the same question we open this entire series with. Who are you? Are you in the crowd? Or are you a committed disciple that's drawn to Jesus? Are you amazed? Or are you committed? See, what's powerful about this word amazed in the Greek, it's passive. It's the passive tense. Again, it's like a student that sits under teaching over and over and over again for decades and decades but never does anything with it. That hears and is amazed. But we see right in the last metaphor, Jesus says, who hears and puts it into practice. Who hears and obeys. That's what Jesus is looking for. People that step out of the crowd, the wide path, and enter through the narrow gate. Onto a path where there's movement. Into discipleship where there's fruit. Into building and recognizing that it all starts with seeds. And all these metaphors, they flow through the first one, a gate. A gate that is life. A gate that's Jesus, no more and no less. We're going to close worshiping Jesus if the worship team could come up. But we've looked back again and again in this series about the way it parallels, the way it draws from, or the way it even contrasts from the Old Testament, the last time Jesus spoke to his people on a mountain at Mount Sinai through Moses and Exodus, we've looked back again and again and again. But as we close tonight, I actually want to look forward because Jesus, the word of God made flesh. He would return to a hillside with a cross to suffer, to die, to take punishment for our sins. You know, the beauty of the gospel is that, yes, our sin was so serious that Jesus had to die for our sins, but his love is so deep that he willingly did it. He loved me so much, he loves you so much, he loves his church and the bride so much that he willingly took up the cross, endured the suffering for the joy set before him for us, to open the gate so that outsiders could become kingdom citizens, so that the spiritually orphaned could become family, so that the crowd could become disciples. So as we stand tonight, as we begin to go into worship, I would just ask the question, who are you? Who are you? Who is Jesus to you? Who are you to Jesus? And if you're a part of the crowd, you've never made a commitment. Maybe you've just kind of been sitting in church week after week after week for years. And maybe you've made a, a, a vow, but you haven't started 
putting it together, truly following movement, fruit, and building. And let tonight be a night where you make a vow and commitment to, to begin to follow Christ with your life, with your heart. But for many of us, I think we probably see ourselves as the disciples. But I pray for each one of us, we will recognize those areas in our lives. We've already got the knowledge we need. We already have the wisdom we need. We've already got the greatest command. We've already got the great commission. Really what we need to do is, is start walking that out. God, I pray for each one of us, you would show us what that next step is. What that movement is. What that seed is that we need to plant that's going to lead to fruit and building in the future. God, I pray that we wouldn't be like that student at Columbia that was there for decade after decade after decade, just taking in knowledge, taking in knowledge, but never going out and having an impact. God, we know that you've put us here. You've given us breath. You gave us salvation. You gave us your grace so you could awaken the giftings and callings in us so that we can go out and have an impact. This four walls, this service, this isn't where church ends, it's where it begins. And God, we know that you have ministry for each one of us in our neighborhoods, our communities, our workplaces, sports teams. God, open our eyes. Call us forward. Jesus, we want to be disciples and followers that see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, in our world, in our zip code, in our neighborhoods, God. We're desperate for it, but we know that it starts in our hearts. It starts with you reviving our hearts, our minds, and our hands and feet. So God, as we worship you tonight, God, help us to answer these questions. Who are you to us? And who are we to you? And if you need prayer for anything, Nate and Laura, the Nawatnees are in the back. They can pray for you. I would love to pray for you. Anything at all. But otherwise, let's reflect on Jesus Christ, what he's done, and how he's calling each one of us forward tonight.